Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a podcast platform to share interesting conversations from the most successful leaders within the Stockholm tech community. My name is Sophie Gould and I'm your host for today. Today, my panel is joining me to discuss a very interesting topic of product management and everything you can think of within product management from key skills, advice and experiences from the people who have been doing it um, for quite some time. So I'm going to introduce my panel straight away. Um, Well, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. And what I'd like to know from each of you is who you are, what you do, and also what you're passionate about. And we'll start with Noah. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Sophie. So uh, I'm Noah and uh, I live in Stockholm uh, currently with my wife and my my, uh, uh, son. and yeah, I worked as a product manager for over five years, and, and I have have an engineering background, so very much into. I would say I'm I'm really into uh, and passionate about about tech. Uh, I think it's like fascinating to to think about the subject and, and what it can do for for society. Um, and yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Oh, nice! Thank you. Well, we're lucky to have you. <laughs> and Carl, we'll come over to you. Yeah, hi, and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Carl Lillerud. I've been working within this area for 25 years, obviously as a product manager for many, many years, but uh, also within, within other related roles that makes it easier for me to help the companies I work with because I get uh, a broader perspective and understand the business as a, as a whole. Nice. And what, what was your passion? Oh yeah, my passion is uh, whoever consumes, like not, not, not end consumers always, but whoever consumes whatever it is that I'm providing, like understanding what value it is that I'm trying to create or what the value it is that the consumer is looking for. Nice, I love that one. That was quite um, quite an interesting hook there. Um, and last but not least, Irina, we'll come over to you. Yes, hi guys. And first of all, thank you for having me here today. My name is Irina and I'm a freelance product manager and product owner. It took me 10 years to find my passion in my professional life, which is surprise, surprise, product development. Uh, And I'm truly excited about building products that customers love with focus on sustainability and growth. I came into this field from non-tech background, Um, actually came here from traditional management consulting, which makes it uh, very interesting. However, my true passion in life are socks. I own way too many <laughs> pairs to count, and I find it being a great way to self-impress. So if you haven't tried it yet, do it. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's definitely a unique <laughs> passion to have. Um, brilliant. Well, now that we kind of um, got to know each other a little bit, I think we've got some really good topics to discuss within within the realm of product management. So let's definitely dig into it. And I think as a starting point, a good question or a good opener would be kind of your opinion of what is the role of a product manager and also why is it needed? So, yeah, just keen to hear your thoughts. Um, and Carl, if, if you want to take us away and start us on that, what, what do you think? Yeah, uh, of course. I think that whoever tried to offer something in something without understanding what it is that we're offering will have a really big struggle. So the value of having a product manager and understanding your product from from a product manager's point of view is is incredibly high. And and uh, there are many companies that actually don't understand what value this brings to the table, so to say, like. We try, you know, we try to just rinse and repeat whatever we have been doing for so many times uh, in the past and, and don't really get how we can fine-tune our offering closer towards the expectations of the customer and so on. And especially in tech, like we, we build tech, uh, tech products and the products that we are offering is to quite large extent limited based on the technological boundaries, if we may call them. 
and not looking at the customer and the consumer who actually is uh, is expecting something that we sometimes totally misunderstand and we believe that this is the solution because we have found a problem but is the consumer really uh, understanding the same problem the, the way that you are like maybe they see it in a totally different way so that's why you really need to connect closer to the customer. Mm, interesting. And and what are your thoughts, Noah or Irina? Um, no, I think it's a it's a very good um, uh, point. Like uh, I I once heard um, like someone phrase it in a way that I thought was pretty compelling. Like uh, a product manager doesn't write code, don't do design, like don't really do anything that is of of end value to the customer. So what do you bring to the table? And I, and I think what Carl, like, as I, as I understand, like putting the focus on the thing that matters and frame it in a way so that people understand what they need to do uh, to make it work for that customer. Um, I, and I think that's, that's the value you bring to the table. You, you put the spotlight on one thing and then you need to translate that so that everyone chipping in to make it work understand uh, what they can do like they can uh, do to to uh, to uh, make this value happen basically uh, yeah it's a broad question a good question <laughs> yeah and Irina what do you think on on the on the topic yeah really really great points and I think what I would like to add as well is uh, I think product manager's role, it is really that sweet spot between customer needs and the business needs forward. Um, and that is where where it becomes such a challenging and interesting, exciting space to be. On one way, the company has objectives and wants to be somewhere in X amount of time. And then you have customers with their needs. So what, what kind of features do do we offer and focus on in order to to maximize both of those values um and and that is i think that is what makes this job so hard and also so exciting because you constantly have to iterate and find that sweet spot it's not it's not that easy nice it sounds like a, a bit of a, a balancing act but like you said challenging but fun I, I think knowing the customer and understanding strategic direction of the company is really important. And and we often see situations where you only focus on one or you know one or the company cannot really define the strategy. It makes product management roles so much harder. We're like, okay, where do, where do we go? I can do as much stuff for the customer, but we also need to make money somewhere around the like along the road. So um, so that's what I think is it's the sweet spot between those two. Nice. Nice. No, I love I love all of the uh the ideas there. Um and I suppose we'll get into now kind of the more, uh, now we know what what kind of the opinion of a, a product manager role is, um, kind of a bit more of the, the nitty gritty on, on these topics. So Noah, your question that we kind of predetermined before this chat was best practices to align stakeholders and the team when you're developing or maintaining a product, um, kind of how to get the feedback and how to take the decisions. So yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm really curious to hear hear your thoughts on like how to create alignment throughout the organization. Um, I feel like there's a really really like a company can excel in execution if everyone is on the same page. And I think that's an important uh, role for the product managers to make sure that happens and also to be able to like. Uh, change directions accordingly to what what you see. But w- what are your thoughts on like how how to align? Uh, um, yeah, like how would you? Uh, what kind of process would you have in development to make sure to align uh, stakeholders? I think it's one of the the most challenging areas uh, because in a way each and every team is protecting themselves from external uh, interference, if we may call it that. Uh, which makes it very difficult to align. But at the same time, we have this this broader goal that the company or, or the 
the product team or whatever it is that we're offering have put up. Like we're going in the one direction, but at the same time we're 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 pulling these anchors behind us, making it even um, more challenging to reach the goal. Uh, and this is something I've been working with more or less every client that I work with. So I understand that, yeah, but there is actually tools that we can apply to get closer to each other. Maybe we don't solve it 100%. That would be uh, a dream for sure. But we can definitely cut some corners or, or limit in the, the distractions and so on. And one thing that I've been doing is to create a set of questions, maybe between three and five questions that these teams that were closely with each other agree on. Like whenever there is something that we want to do, we have these three to five questions that we ask ourselves. Is this according to the long-term goal? Is this according to budget? Is this according to, and, and the questions differ for every company. Like we, we, we drive the company based on different ideas. But as long as the teams agree on these questions, it's easier to agree on the, the overall prioritization. Yeah. And if you have more than five questions, you're overcomplicating it. And then the result will be that you don't use this as a tool. I'm curious to know what, what are these questions like? Yeah, so it depends on, on the company. Okay. Um, uh, it depends on what type of product it is. It depends on what time frame we have and so on and so on. Mm. Like if it's a true MVP, then we definitely should always question, is this something that is of crucial need right now? Mm. Uh, if it's something that is um, time consuming, then we need to look at, okay, so do we actually have the time for this or should we try to slice it up in smaller pieces, move something to the backlog and, and focus on what's uh, crucial right now? Uh, if it's something that involves a cost, then do we have the budget and stuff like that? Like depending on the team and the, uh, the company and the product that we're building, the questions are always different. But the importance is to have all the teams agreeing on these set of questions because then in a way we don't need to communicate how we prioritize because we mm -hmm. can only uh, communicate yeah as you see we ask these questions and these are the obvious answers uh, don't you agree and then in most situations people will say yeah i agree or there's slight difference but mm. overall there is an agreement on in terms of how to prioritize mm. so you kind of set like frame the task in a way and everybody agrees on on that and then they have yeah. some freedom to move as long as yeah. they answer the questions yeah exactly and and it becomes easier to talk to other teams that you depend on like uh we we know that you're looking at this but we have this other thing that needs your attention when we ask uh, the the set of questions this is what we came up with do you agree Mm. Uh, because maybe they are working on something that they see as top priority because they don't know of this other thing that uh, that you have in mind. Um, and then you can do some of the groundwork by by like preparing the answers for them. Mm. Thank you. I think you guys are raising a really, really good question. And Noah, that, I think in general, you know, when we think about product manager, I don't think communication as a main skill is the first thing that comes into mind to somebody who is not within the field. But really, the only thing that product manager does is manages stakeholders and communicates mm. all the time. Yeah. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And then you communicate one more time because mm. somebody yeah. just decided not to listen. And, and that is, in my experience, absolutely the hardest part of the job. If there were no people involved, it would be a dream. <laughs> but we work with yeah. people all the time. And people have their own minds, their own agenda, their own paths to follow. And and navigating that is is challenging. And mm. somehow being very, very strict and direct. But I also think consistency is very important as a company as a mm. company culture. If somebody every now and then decides it's okay to go by those five main questions that we agreed on, that creates the precedence, right? That creates a chance for somebody else to do that. So keeping mm. 
company culture and I haven't seen that in my career yet but keeping that strict culture of how do we operate how do we respect our goals and main strategy that is crucial for success and that's why mm. we see companies taking years and years and years to try to deliver on somebody that something that nobody wants in them because it mm. takes so long time um it is communication clear roadmaps clear dependence it's but it's not easy it's so easy to, to be said but it's not easy to be done no exactly no and i think i think that's i think one thing that i spend a lot of time on thinking as a as a product manager is like having uh, people to really believe in the idea like working like out of out of themselves to to fulfill that like i would i would say like the worst thing that can happen as a pm is that, that you kind of like let's go that way and then you sense that pe people don't really buy into that like yeah yeah i don't think that's a good idea and then they end up in a in a in a state of mind where i'm going to go your direction just to prove you it's not going to work and then, of course, it's not going to work if the ones that are actually going to develop and, and create this do it for a reason to show you that it's not going to work, that it's a bad idea. Like, I, I think that's the worst case, but I think it, it can happen quite often in, in large organization, organizations, especially that kind of like have, have less possibilities to to sense that in a in a group of people yeah i can yeah. totally agree uh, and i think that the more hierarchy we have if you have pms and you have actually product owners that work with a team if you as a pm don't have access to the teams that makes that communication down so much harder because everybody has their own agendas right and mm. product owners will have their own ideas what they want to get out and how do you keep that common goal in mind and get the buy-in mm. that is not easy and that's when we can talk about the data and why we're building mm. what we're building right um it is yeah. uh yeah communication is hard yeah and, and with communication comes um your own secret sauce to it in a way like yeah i hear what you say this is what what i conclude of this which does not or in very many situations differ mm. like mm. what i have done especially when there's uh very time sensitive projects like uh, where we have a very limited time frame and uh, also where there are messy organizations where where there's some some past that uh, cause some friction and so on i i revalidate the whatever we talk about like okay so now we have talked about this tell me what we talked about mm. interesting and that's super yeah. interesting because that in so many of these complex situations turn out to be the source of misunderstandings like yeah we left the meeting maybe it's 12 people in the meeting but there is actually three different groups in this meeting that thought they totally got it mm. Because when they validated their idea, they spoke to Ole or Sarah or whatever, and he said, yeah, that was what we talked about. And then they did not talk to Anders or Nils or whoever who got it the other way around. Mm. I'm like, okay. And then especially in these uh, more critical uh, projects, that's where it goes so wrong. Mm. Because people are stressed and they have their own backlog and, and their own focus area and as you said the agenda and so on that they they tend to connect whatever they hear towards that whatever is buzzing around in their mind already mm, yeah and what i i think also is also a good strategy to remember that we're doing everything for the common goal there is the company's strategy this is we're in this together it doesn't matter if you succeed and i fail then we fail together so mm, rem yep. reminding people that okay it's the best hands on the deck it's not about 
it's not about right processes all the time. It's about who can fix this in the best way that we can reach our goal in the fastest, most efficient way. And that often helps. That often snaps people out about uh, out of it a little bit. Mm. Like, oh, right, right. We're trying to achieve something. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, humanizes mm. everything. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, humanizing everything. I like that way of reasoning. Like, yeah, we're working in these tech environment, but but we are just people. We're just people. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you you realize as a product manager that I need to schedule one on one with twenty people this week just to talk about and make sure that we are aligned. And then you have this common meeting where everybody sits together and you say, "Okay, so this is the plan," and then you know that everyone already believes in it. But it helps. It's like create this strength that everybody sees everyone yeah. else also believing it so but it takes it i mean it takes time uh, yeah. it's uh, it's um, i think that's that's one like hidden part of the job that doesn't really it, it doesn't say in any role description that you know in this communication it will take a lot of time because you're going to spend a lot of time talking to people about this um yeah yeah yeah, and that's an interesting topic as well, because being a product manager to a surprising large extent is also very much connected to HR. Mm. Like you actually need to make sure that the team is happy and that they are motivated and they are interested in whatever it is that they're working on. Yeah. And that doesn't always mean that we're talking a product about product any longer but for us to succeed on our venture whatever it is we need to make sure that everybody are aligned yeah i totally agree carl uh, management of a team that is a completely different topic yeah and and especially if you are maybe one step away from the team oh yeah that that makes it very challenging yeah. on a daily basis yeah which makes it even more interesting when when we talk to the companies that that we work with because we have this role description and the role description never ever mention like the soft area <laughs> like yeah and then there's individuals that you need to manage as well like no not really like yeah we have a product and we have this process we have this way of uh, of running things uh, and uh, and then everything should be a smooth ride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and that's where I, I think it's also it's a very common discussion if product managers should have the tech background because it's so important. And I will argue every day of the week that well, it's actually soft skills that make it or break it a product manager. And then tech it's great, but that you can learn. <laughs> if you mm. cannot manage people, you will have hard time at work. Yeah, mm. definitely. <laughs> It sounds like you're all uh, definitely speaking from experience with experiences with challenges, wins, what's worked, what hasn't. Um, and you're so right, kind of dealing with people is probably the most difficult. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that was a, a good kind of a discussion on on how to align and then a little bit bit wider. But no, really good start to the, to the conversation. And Carl, we'll come over to your question now, which was how to address for being future proof. And before before this, we talked about kind of user validation, testing. Um, so yeah, let's dig deeper into that. Yeah. So this is one of the areas that I really, really love to dig into with every company, and but also in other initiatives where I help individuals and so on. Um, because we we often have a goal, not always, but but most of the time we have a goal of something that we want to succeed in uh, updating or changing or, or building an entirely new product. But in that, we tend to limit ourselves to the set of features and, uh, and functions that we want to implement. And and by doing that, we create the frame the framing or the box, and we stop in a way, looking outside these boundaries. But to future-proof whatever it is that we're building, we need to think about how to make it into some some structure that have tons of hole in it. Like We need to be able to attach things wherever we want in the future. 
So whatever we construct should look a little bit like um, uh, Technic Lego. Like the, there is Lego bricks that we can connect as we want, but then we got the, the round holes that go straight into the Lego bricks as well, there where we can connect whatever we don't understand that we might need in the future today. And for us to, to open that space, uh, it, it needs a little bit of different way of building a product, I think. Uh, of course, we talk about not creating the 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 monolith and all of that but what i'm talking about is to, to breaking it up into pieces that are connectable in in any kind of way but also in the ways that we can't even imagine like there are many products that can be repurposed to other types of areas like there are products that are for healthcare that very easily can be repurposed for um building i don't know houses and stuff like that like when we have built something we should question can this be used in in other areas than what we thought of it from the beginning and maybe we can sell it by just rebranding it over and over again and with that saving tons of development time and money interesting can i flick in and just like when, when you were describing your your thoughts i had three ideas in my head none of them are structured so i'll try to structure them along the way here but my first thought was monolith panic second thought separation of concern very important third thought how do we not make things too complicated especially in the beginning when we try to build for all the flexibilities in the world where we don't need them so that that was it's like oh this and this and i don't really know where to start but i definitely agree with you in terms of and i think separation of concern is probably the most the one that sticks the most for me when when, when you talk about this how important it is to to keep the separation of concern, to make sure that we can stick stick out things or glue things together when it's needed. But yeah, also, especially with startups, I see so much the opposite. When we build for all the possible flexibilities in the world where we don't even have proof of concept, and that is yeah. not good either, right? So yeah. it's that fine balance of not ending up with monoliths and that yeah. we see i mean that's what i do most of the time i help companies to break those and that is never easy if no, it's, pos totally if it's even possible yeah and and i like your example with the startups as well because many startups are founded with a great vision or idea that uh, that the founding team believes in but in many situations maybe the team that then build it don't have the experience to understand how to break it up without overcomplicating it. I, I I really like this question. It's a it's a tough question. It's, it's I mean uh, as you guys say it's it's really hard uh, to answer. Like I, I understand it in two parts. Like one uh, is is kind of like how to make sure that we kind of like not build short term and, and make sure that we are thinking like that we can can take this into the future and like the, the product and and one thing I don't know if I misunderstood but was kind of like uh, like recycling what we have and use it for other purposes like not having to rebuild stuff again and again and again but just kind of like taking what we have and applying it to new areas where it creates more value so I, I I love those two two uh, both those two areas and the, and the first part like I I think this is the common struggle of of like every company and and like you realize that you are in uh, too short term and with too heavy debt too late like always like these rewrites and it's like oh my god why they happen all the time. Um, so I, I think this like in, in product there's one and in tech they have this problem so so much because there's always new libraries and new new um, languages to to apply. Yeah. Um, but but I would say like tying back to to what you open up with call like um, thinking about the, the value you create for the customer. Yeah. 
because like that is essentially like what you are supposed to to do and then you apply it to some kind of artifact an app like yeah. when people say yeah i have an idea for an app that's really like uh, that's not future proof because like app is the current device or like the the technology we use today to solve something it might not be the thing tomorrow. Uh, so so I, I would say one way of future proofing is to always make sure that you have your eyes on on the on creating value for the customer. And then you just apply whatever technology or solution you need to do that and it will evolve and become more efficient. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is that is a super interesting area. Uh, sorry, I lost sound for a second. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a super interesting area, and and that is that we we believe that we we know the landscape, but mm. we really don't. But also in the same way, we really do, because there are so much new interesting technology out there, like AR, for example, and VR. Mm. Yeah, we, we all know that it's there, but if we take it a little bit further, there is actually AR lenses already in production. That you, mm. that you put inside your eye, like a normal lens, that is then loaded with information as you walk around town and say what street name it is and how you find to the closest bus stop or whatever. Like that it already exists, but it's not in, in every, every person's hand or eye in this case, <laughs> making it totally irrelevant for us to build for. Mm. So again, if we circle back to whoever is consuming whatever it is that you're presenting, how will that consumer consume it? Or how will that consumer prefer to consume it? Mm. Like if we talk about uh, voice as one example that have been on prioritized in many of these areas for quite some time, like yeah, voice is the next big thing. Um, for consumers, they're like, yeah, but I don't really think about how I want to order soap for or washing detergent or whatever it is that I run out of. I just want to get it ordered and then delivered. And then we connect to Omnichannel and like, yeah, okay, how do we solve that? And we, product managers, see all these technical and technological challenges that we need to interconnect. But the consumer is like, yeah, I just want to consume. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very, very valid point. And it's it, it's this balance of being excited about technology and not forgetting about reality, right? And yeah. voice maybe will come in play in 10 years. Maybe we'll be here in two years. Things happen very, very yeah. fast. But it's still, I still, to date, have never ordered anything with voice. It never yeah. understands me. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but... I'm also a late adopter and everything when it comes to my private life. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's interesting because it's ease of use is one thing, but it's also uh, access, which is the other thing. Like, yeah, we know that we have some, some sort of uh, voice assistant in our smartphones, but the smartphone in, in is in our pocket. We need to pick it out. But when we talk about voice, it should be accessible right where we are whenever we're walking around, especially in our home. And that is interesting because in very many of the speakers nowadays, we also have a microphone that is installed and that can be activated with Alexa or Google, uh, Google Assistant or whatever assistant you choose to use. Um, and, and now I see that there is more and more devices that are actually holding the feature of a microphone in a speaker with devices that I did not expect would have that information or that technology. So very but soon you're... we will have that assistant accessible on a, like a whisper distance, so to say. Mm. Uh, I mean, and here it's, uh, you're talking a bit about like when to place the bet for, for that technology. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. And and there's the ease of use and the access, but there's also the problem, right? Is there a yeah. problem? Do you have issues of ordering the way we do today? Is it enough annoying? Uh, or are we happy where we are for today? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like if I were to buy 
um, a new suit, I would not go and order that using voice. What? Like, order me a new dark green suit, please. <laughs> like, that wouldn't happen. Not, not today, anyhow. But when I run out of stuff, I would be happy to order it with voice. Like, it should not even be a question for me to have to ask. Like, it's out, just get it for me. Almost mm -hmm. like... Um, uh the amazon uh, go stores as i walk in i pick up whatever i want and then they use image recognition and as i walk out they charge me for whatever i put in my pocket but i will uh, also not argue but maybe make a case that it might be one of those technologies that we're actually gonna jump over and when you need stuff it will be ordered automatically so you don't even yeah. have to do the voice right so it's yeah, it's exactly. like if we look at African countries that completely skipped the credit cards, they're like, no, yeah. we don't need the um, mobile yeah. payment all in. Yeah. Um, oh, they also totally skipped computers as the first uh, yeah. contact with the internet. Yeah. Like mobile first in a totally different way. Yeah. So it, it's a very interesting market for sure. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, as you say, uh, voice might not even be needed because there are other technologies that will uh, solve it like if if as we talked about uh, or we uh, we touched on it data-driven information like if a device can trace how uh, how many times i lift up the milk carton it will know how much milk is left in the uh, left in the milk carton and then it should know that if I have set it to automatically reorder when it's out, then it should just show up at my doorstep. Or why don't we have an RFID scanner in our trash can? Yeah, I think like, we I think we will be there. I really do. Yeah, yeah, and and like, why do we have to have a smart fridge? Why can't we just put an RFID scanner in, in the trash can to to remove the complex complexity of having a smart fridge with uh, analyze which analyze all the content in the fridge or even going the Amazon Go way with having a camera inside the fridge like don't overcomplicate it no <laughs> I agree I think the last I, I've seen I've seen Coop I think release this feature where you can scan the barcode barcodes at home um, in order to reorder the same stuff and that's also the, that's one step towards the, the right direction um yeah never used it though but sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's and with this like when to jump on the train i think there's it's a, like it's a pretty old uh book but it's i, I find it's uh working very often or like uh, but it's called crossing the chest so it's often when a product is launched like yeah. it goes up like oh my god uh but then all of a sudden it kind of stops and that's because you built for like these innovators and early adopters yeah. are excited about these things but then as soon as you're supposed to go into this grand majority they're like hell no i'm uh, so in this example voice no i i i don't want to learn that uh no like and that is a, such a difficult like crossover to yeah. reach this grand majority and, and and i guess when in product development you often like very early on think that you reach success and that that i think is also one thing why startups early on get kind of like very high va um, valuations since they can prove like a big user growth in the very beginning and that's from these kind of people who are excited about this but they are often like few uh, compared to the mass. Yeah. So it's difficult to know when you are over that, like uh, when you're actually starting to reach the masses and have something that will will scale above. Yeah, yeah. And the challenge with the early adopters is that they are uh, they are looking for the next thing to jump to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, loyalty uh, is not the early adopters' best no. quality. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. Um... It's quite interesting that 
the the I was thinking about the scanners in in the trash cans. I think that would be such a good idea. I can't believe it's not already kind of been invented. You know, I mean, it seems so obvious. Um, yeah. But no, I think there's some. Uh, Interesting thoughts there, definitely interesting, and I'm sure people listening 100% would agree with, with some of them. Um, but as we approach kind of the final final section of this, um, Irina, we'll come over to yours, which we touched on it slightly, um, the data-driven data approach to development. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, and how do you disprove or prove the hypothesis in feature selection? Um, so yeah, tell us about your experiences with this in the past. Yes, thank you. Um, I want to start with a disclaimer uh, that I really don't have an answer to my own question. And that is really why I want to raise this in order to hear your experiences and learn from you guys. But we, we talked about this today that our jobs as product managers and product owners is to discover a product or a product feature that is valuable, usable and feasible, right? This is what we do. And when selecting the feature for development, we ideally, ideally want to be able to start by looking at the data and then continue with hypothesis and then hopefully release it as soon as possible and iterate. Uh, but the trick when it comes to data is that you need to A, have the data, B, have the right data, and C, ask the right questions about the data in order to gather right insights. And in my experience, I have not been able to actually come to the point where gathering of right insights of the data was possible and instead I put effort into convincing companies to start working with data collection or improving on data quality or setting up the processes to collect the data and the best I've come to uh, be able to use automatically generated data is really to decide what not to build or even to be more precise to say what should we remove because it's not being used uh, but never to decide what to build. Uh, and when it comes to manual data, then I think customer, customer service data has been valuable to, to see what areas of improvements that we have that we can actually minimize the cost in customer data and customer service. Uh, but that is manual data that we collect. So I would like to hear your thoughts and experience in this field and some learnings about working with the data. Are you actually working with data on a day-to-day -day basis? Or has any of the companies that you've worked with um, has used data as main decision-making tools? Or maybe you have interpreted the data in some way that was crazy and, and resulted in some uh, completely wasted development. Very open question, um, but I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on that. Great question. I, I think I... I... Uh, so I can start. Uh, um, I've been very fortunate with with like the the company I work at now on, on Hemnet. Like uh, they they are um, a very like um, popular uh, service. So a lot of people use it. So we we have have a lot of data and, and access to data. Um, so and I I think that's like when you are in that environment. Uh, it's it's very easy to to kind of like do a very like a small scale test that still generates a lot of uh, like reliable things that you can take decisions on. Um, one thing that I I think when you design a test that is often missed is the cost of time from like the starting of of the test until you actually have the knowledge. So. As an example, like like we often measure our costs in like uh, how much capacity are we using coding, and not waiting. So time from like uh, needing the insight to getting the insight. So if you test things for three months, uh, then you have a cost of opportunity cost of three months where you're just waiting more or less. So I'm thinking like one thing that I learned is that it's really, really crucial to get a fast feedback loop. Uh, when you have a question, what kind of uh, way should I, like, uh, what do I need to do to answer that question uh, with as reliable data as possible? But the trade-off is in time. So if I, I'm starting with a mock-up 
and I'm looking, can I build something usable? Like referring back to the, the risks you talked about. Maybe the easiest way for me is to actually just <laughs> run out on the street and find if people just can click through uh, a mockup. And if they can't, I know that within an hour and then I know I need to redo it. Like I can say, yeah, that's not really reliable. It's only 10 people. I need to test it on 1,000. And then I create a prototype and I let it be out uh, for a, a week. But then I like spent a week where I could do maybe, I don't know, five, 10 iterations to build a better prototype. So I, now I'm, I'm, yeah. It's maybe an addition to the question, but I think that's very important when you work with data to think of the time it takes to generate it because that's an alternative cost. Yeah, but but also uh, I really love what you're saying because it connects very much with with how I believe we should do stuff, and that's again not overcomplicating it. Uh, just get it done. It's better than trying to make it perfect, especially when we try to validate something. And one risk of, of trying to collect the right data is that we're looking for the right data. Basically, that we're collecting data to validate the idea that we want to build towards and not to see if we're actually doing the right stuff. Mm. So Basically, that is very common. Yeah, that that is the that is the tra the trap data trap. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So one of the most important things is to not validate your idea, but test your idea and see what the data have to tell you. Mm. So the big difference is that you're not trying to prove your own hypotheses. Uh, uh, but instead trying to try to learn from the data that you collect. And maybe that means that you need to collect three times as much data or the, that you collect the data in three different ways to see how, how, how this can actually be proven. But uh, I'm a strong believer in collecting massive amount of data because we don't know what we want to do with the data in a year or two. Like maybe we run an experiment today and let's play with the idea that to run this experiment, we need to invest three months of uh, development time. Uh, and, and then in the end, we concluded that we should not do this, but maybe the information we collected during that experiment will prove to be incredibly valuable in a year. Mm. And maybe the EU legislations in a year, say we can't collect that data any longer. <laughs> like, mm. there, are, there are these other things that we don't think of. And storage today is crazy cheap. So we should not be bothered be, with how much space something costs for us. Mm. It's better to try to collect the information and then see how these creative ideas that we work with can use this data to to learn more about what we should do for the future hmm. Irina you talked about like manual data talking to to customer support and I I think that uh, when trying to build something like like I guess the reason to 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 do data driven like like approach to development is like to avoid building the wrong thing um, and I think like you know like at some point you must always place the bet um, and you want to build a certain type of confidence before you place that bet uh, before you do that investment and uh, so I guess like with manual data or like like data that is on scale, like like real user behavior. Um, yeah, I saw this compelling thing. It was like a, a wheel with different levels of confidence that you had. Like this is someone else did it 10 years ago. That's like a very bad data and like live A-B testing with thousands of users. That's very, very high confident data. And then there's a scale. And I find it like pretty good to apply that when you, when you like are gonna make a decision, like where are we actually on this scale, on 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 this decision, uh, because very often you are like maybe you realize it's it's pretty risky 
like we don't really know like we base this on on quite few inputs but i think like having like manual data like each type of different kind of um, confidence in that scale can really also direct you what you need to do next uh, or yeah mm -hmm. A great insight, and it got me thinking about something else vaguely related to this. But uh, the trap of falling in love with your own product, and uh, you know, not actually accepting the failure, and mm. or even worse, companies not allowing for failure or waiting for that too high confidence level, and and that makes me generally sad. I think we should release things fast and fail and that should be okay we should accept that but it's also very very hard when you work on a feature to not fall in love with it to not fall in love uh, with that solution and not be like no 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 this is the thing well, nobody uses this no 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 this is the thing and oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I probably preached it a while uh, before starting with it just to get like everybody on board and uh, yeah Oh, absolutely. And, and and it is an ego, I mean, it's not an ego boost, anti-ego boost, but it's part of the job and it's such an important part of the job. And I think product managers that never take those risks also have lesser chances to survive. Like if you've never received, released the feature that nobody wanted, then you haven't taken the risk and we mm. do need to take the risk. That's part mm. of the job. Doesn't mean that you have to just shoot left and right, but sometimes maybe you should if the team thinks it's a great idea. Um, a little bit different thought, but also like being too, waiting too long, being too confident, testing out, sitting on the feature for way too long. And Not it costs money. It's, it costs time. Like you could have done yeah. something else during that yeah. time. Opportunity yeah. cost is a great, uh, yeah. great thing to think about all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, I mean, that is in product management, knowing how to, how to evaluate opportunity cost is, is like kind of like this hidden, uh, hidden thing that that. Uh, yeah, I think we will like all benefit from practicing a lot more, uh, actually. Yeah. Mm. Oh, nice. Well, I'll jump in here to kind of round it off because there's, um, yeah, we're approaching the, the kind of hour now, but that's been such an interesting conversation. Um, I think there's some really interesting points of view there and, and it's quite nice that there was a quite a different point of view and it wasn't just everybody saying the same thing there was quite a few differences in uh, opinions but but almost like for the same common goal which is which is really nice so yeah does anyone have any final kind of points um i mean i just want to say thank you to you all for your your insight and obviously thank you to everybody listening um i'm sure it'll be a really good conversation to listen back to and kind of take some insight from but yeah any final comments from from anyone yeah, I, I have a summary for uh, for all listeners. Of course, if, if any of you guys want to reach out to any of us, uh, just look us up on LinkedIn because LinkedIn is the best business platform, as I'm sure every listener knows. But uh, I tend to be surprised how few of uh, of the people I work with that actually use LinkedIn. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, yeah, I'll definitely... Wait, I mean, I'm going to share it to LinkedIn, but uh, if anybody's listening who doesn't have LinkedIn, 100%, um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. I thought it was just kind of really, really common. But no, I yeah. think if anybody's got any questions, feel free to to share them with the guests, with myself. Um, and yeah, finally, thank you to Irina, Noah, Carl, 100% amazing conversation. is so, so relevant to the topic. So yeah, thank you all for taking the time.